The Old Testament scripture reading is taken from Psalm 42. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and behold the face of God? My tears have been my food day and night. Why people say to me continually, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I went with the throng and led them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you, from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to, to deep at the thunder of your cataracts. All your waves and your billows have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I walk about mournfully? Because the enemy oppresses me? As with a deadly wound in my body, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me continually, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my help and my God. Thanks be to God. The New Testament reading this morning uh, seems, on the surface anyway, to be odd and uh, strange uh, to us and On first reading, I'm guessing that will be one of your reactions, but I want you to know, and we're going to discover this in a few minutes, uh, this uh, strange, odd reading actually has a powerful lesson uh, behind it. So uh, let's look at this together. It's found in Luke chapter 8, and I will uh, begin reading at verse 26. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then Jesus and his disciples arrived at the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. As he stepped out on land, a man of the city who had demons met him. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he did not live in a house but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he fell down before him and shouted at the top of his voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. For many times it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the wilds. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? He said, legion, for many demons had entered him. They begged him not to order them to go back into the abyss. Now there on the hillside, a large herd of swine was feeding, and the demons begged Jesus to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When the swine herd saw what had happened, they ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came out to see what had happened, and when they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those 
who had seen it told them how the one who had been possessed by demons had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. So he went away, proclaiming throughout the city how much Jesus had done for him. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, let me ask you something, and and this is actually the theme of of today's sermon. Uh, How well do you handle change? Uh, Change is wonderful, I think, when it happens to other people. Uh, Don't you love it when other people make the necessary changes that that we think they ought to make, that we've been hoping and praying that they will make in in their lives? Uh, I can handle that kind of change very, very well. Uh, The other kind, though, the kind that involves me and my life, not so much. Change, uh, I would say, is almost universally uh, uncomfortable. No one likes change except, maybe you've heard this whole expression before, no one likes change except for babies with wet diapers. Uh, Every year for the last uh, dozen years, I have attended a, a, a worship conference in the U.S. It's been... Uh, much more difficult to attend since I moved here, but uh, until the move, I went to this conference every year for uh, 12 years. And what happens is that churches, sometimes campus ministries and other organizations uh, are involved as well, but mainly churches, which have applied for worship renewal grants uh, or funding, come together to talk about their projects and how those projects went over the course of the year. And without going into too much detail, I I serve on the board of an organization that gives away a great deal of money uh, to churches that want to make their worship better or more vital uh, uh, than it currently is. And every year, the the board uh, reads a hundred or so grant applications, and then uh, we fund about a third of them, uh, giving away uh, hundreds of thousands of U.S. dollars in the process. And in mid-June, and I was not able to attend uh, this last week, but in mid-June, the grant recipients come together and they tell their stories. Uh, They also worship together and they also attend uh, seminars, but mainly the event is for them to tell their stories. And uh, what happens when they tell their stories is thrilling and inspiring and energizing, and every year I, uh, I go back to my church with new energy and and new uh, passion because of the stories I've heard, because I know that God is active in so many places uh, around the world. Can you guess the number one issue on the minds uh, of most grant recipients when they come together? Uh, I'll give you a hint. It it wasn't the great idea that they came up with, uh, the idea that won them as much as uh, 15,000 U.S. dollars in grant money. In fact, uh, it was never the money, and it was never the idea. Uh, Instead, what seemed to be on the minds of every single grant recipient, and this happened every year that I attended uh, this meeting, uh, was was how to get their churches to change. 
Right? Every person at this event, and, and there were always 200 or so of us, every person had been awarded a substantial amount of money because of some imaginative and innovative uh, creative idea. Some of them, and I know this because I read all the grant proposals, uh, some were breathtaking in their imagination. Uh, and in case you, you were wondering, the, the, the church in the world today is alive and it's, it's working very, very hard uh, to provide excellent worship. The problem in the leader of every organization and every committee, bank, board, institution, family, uh, every leader knows this. The problem is convincing everybody else what sheer genius your idea is. The Grant Review Board can easily spot genius. Every year we come to consensus uh, very quickly uh, about the best grant proposals. But getting people to go along with your great idea Ah, that is always the hardest work. If there had been a course offered during my seminary training on managing change in a complex organization, I think I would have signed up for that. I forget New Testament. Not really, but uh, I mean, forget church history. Anybody can read about that. Right? It's knowing how to lead people through change that that pastors really ought to know how to do. Anyway, I've done a fair amount of reading over the years in, in this area of change and, and how to introduce it and how to win support for it and so on. And, and there's a lot of literature out there about it, as you can imagine, but maybe no stories. You might be surprised to hear this. Maybe no stories are as helpful as the stories we find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You cannot imagine how much helpful information there is to be found here. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in this way or not, but Jesus introduced more change during the course of his ministry, and I'm talking about deep-level change here too, not just superficial change, than anyone in history. I mean, think about that. How many historical figures, for example, can you name who have changed the way we describe time? Before Christ and after Christ. Right? It's breathtaking when you think about it. In just 30 years, he introduced change on such a large scale that uh, history itself had to be described in a different way. Believers and, and, and talk about believers and non-believers alike. Uh, the change Jesus introduced often turned individual lives upside down, but uh, even more impressive. I think he turned whole villages upside down. We read about one of those occasions today. And frankly, he turned the whole nation of Israel upside down. And then later, as you know, it took another few hundred years. The entire Roman Empire was changed. By way of background for the story I read for you today, Jesus was almost always in motion. If he stopped, it was never for very long. He would stop along the road and... And he would heal somebody or tell a story or ask an utterly disarming question. And then off he would go, uh, leaving people with no choice but to uh, react or to adjust or to change. Uh, and they did this, as you know, with varying degrees of success. Uh, several people, uh, or some people were thrilled, of course. Uh, but as we heard in the story for today, uh, many more were not thrilled at all. Uh, they were afraid, and in some cases they were angry, uh, both common reactions to change. 
Right? The, the one thing you can count on, though, is that no one was ever quite the same after Jesus passed by. Uh, so in the story I read for you today, Jesus comes to the country of the, the Gerasenes, which is on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, and not quite the Golan Heights, but uh, in the direction of what is now Syria. It's not quite clear why he went there. It's Gentile territory, as the story tells us, between the tombs and the pigs. Uh, there was a great deal about this place that was not right for a Jew. Uh, when we were in Israel a few months ago, our guide said that Jesus had to leave Capernaum because he no longer felt safe there, which was a theory I'd never heard before. Uh, the Gospels do not tell us that explicitly. Uh, all we know is that Jesus and his disciples took a boat ride across the lake, and, and when the boat arrived on the other side, a man from the city came out to meet Jesus. The man wore no clothes. He was homeless. He lived mainly in the cemetery outside of town. More than once, the townspeople had tried to tie him down with chains. But he would break out of whatever they used to subdue him. And then, as the story puts it, he would be driven by the demon, his personal demon, into the wilds. Now, let me ask you something. Is there anyone here who thinks this is a good situation? Uh, I, I, I didn't think so. Uh, then tell me this, why did they put up with it? I mean, how could they live with this awful situation day in, day out, uh, year in, year out? Right? Their children must have been terrified. It, it, it sounds horrible. You know, there are going to be some people who read this story and who prefer to have a conversation about demonic possession and, and exorcism, and, and they're going to debate the issue of uh, uh, demonic possession versus mental illness, and, and someone, uh, some of us here would really like to figure out uh, what was bothering this man. Uh, in fact, I've had those conversations myself. And just so you know, I think they're interesting. I, I, I think I mentioned in a sermon one time that early in my ministry... I wanted to explain demonic possession as mental illness. made more sense. I figured that these first century people were primitive and didn't know any better, and, and now, of course, we are far more sophisticated, and we know about things like mental illness. But you know something? After a, a few years of holding that uh, belief, I came to the conclusion that these first century people uh, probably knew far more about the spiritual life than we do. I think they sometimes had a far better appreciation for the reality and power of evil in the world. Anyway, as I reflect on this story, it seems clear that none of that matters. None of that helps us get at the truth which is at the heart of this story. I mean, none of that was an issue for Luke. The, the man's mental state was not in question for him. Uh, as far as he was concerned, the man was demon-possessed, and the story continues. Uh, what Luke wants us to see, I think, is that the village has a problem. A, a serious, heartbreaking problem. They know this man, and, and they have known him since he was a child, and his parents, and his brothers, and his sisters. They all live in this village. Not to mention some aunts and uncles and cousins. They were all somehow related to each other. And no one seems to know what to do, and so the problem goes on and on, year after year, getting more desperate as time goes on. Here's the thing about problems like these. We will do just about anything to preserve the status quo. To keep things as they have always been, rather than taking the necessary steps for change. 
I read somewhere last week that people learn to love their chains. Right? And I think that's true, don't you? We learn to love our chains. Many of us have family members, or we know people who have family members who are ill or mentally ill or chemically dependent, demon-possessed. Uh, or these family members can be bullies and, and uh, they get their way by frightening everyone around them. Or these people can be needy and passive. That's how they get their way. And all too often what happens in these families, well, they live with it. They aren't happy about it, of course, but they live with it. And, and often they expend enormous amounts of energy uh, to do what? To pretend that it is a manageable problem. Uh, that it's not so bad that it's their cross to bear, and they say, well, you know, every family has its problems. Last weekend, Jim Bultema, our uh, retreat leader, explained to us that when the Bible speaks about having a cross to bear, it's not a reference to a difficult relative. According to the Bible, when you pick up your cross and follow Jesus, it means just that. You are on your way to die. Sorry, but biblically speaking, your cross to bear is not your brother-in-law. What's happening here in this story is something very different, and so let me put it this way. Uh, A son or a daughter will marry, and the new uh, son-in-law or or daughter-in-law will be introduced into the family system, and with a fresh pair of eyes, fresh uh, pair of ears, the new arrival will see and hear things, or will see and hear how things go in this family. And the new son-in-law or the new daughter-in-law might say, if that person is brave, Oh my, what have I gotten myself into? Something's not right in this family. Don't you see what's going on here? Uh, But of course, everyone can see it. It's just that everyone has decided that living with the problem is far easier than tackling it head on. Why? I'm not sure. Right? But the fear of change is very powerful, and so is the fear of the unknown. It's astonishing to me how far families and organizations or businesses, even churches, will go to excuse bad behavior. We'll smile uncomfortably when someone points it out to us, but we will change the subject as soon as we can. Look, every family does have its problems, I know that, but, but, but wouldn't we choose life and and health and vitality over dysfunction. Who who wants to live their lives walking on eggshells, never knowing when the next explosion is going to happen? So back to Jesus, and I wonder if you've ever noticed this about him before. He he came to bring life. But the way many people perceived it at the time was that he came to stir up trouble. Uh, He really didn't want it, of course, but that's how people uh, perceived it. And one time he seemed to realize that this was the role he was playing, and he acknowledged it. He said, I came not to bring peace, but the sword. Just by speaking the truth, just by poking his nose into unhealthy situations, he made people uncomfortable. But not everyone. Uh, And it's important for us to see that. Uh, Some people were set free. Uh, One of my all-time favorite gospel stories, and you already know that I have dozens and dozens of favorite stories, but one of my favorites is the one about the the invalid by the pool at Bethsaida. There was this man who had uh, made a whole career out of being an invalid. He had been there 
at the pool for 38 years, an astonishing length of time. It was his whole identity. He had business cards printed up. It doesn't tell us that. But apparently, he made a decent living at it. And Jesus walked right up to him one day and asked such a wonderful question. Jesus looked at him and said, do you want to be well? What a wonderful question. Jesus always had this way of getting right to the point. And in our story for today, Jesus said to the demon-possessed man, what is your name? What is your identity? What should I call you? And as you know, the man at the pool, to his everlasting credit, saw his opportunity and he seized it. Uh, So some people, including the man in our story uh, for today, were given a whole new life. And, and, And some of them couldn't help but sing and dance and tell everyone they came into contact with what had happened. It's the others I'm thinking about today. The ones who were so threatened by change that they wanted to throw Jesus out. Let me point something out to you that I, I, I don't think I saw in this story the, the first time I went through it. Uh, who did the people of this village ask to leave? Right? Was it the demon-possessed man who actually seems to fade into the background of the story at the end? Uh, he was the one, after all, who had made their lives miserable. He was the one who caused them to live in this perpetual state of fear and anxiety. Did they ask him to leave? No, strangely enough, they asked Jesus to leave. When it was all over, they said, Would you please go? Leave us alone. There was no thank you, no sense of relief. Just please go. Jesus was a truth-teller in this situation, but truth-tellers are almost never honored. Uh, Think about that. Uh, Whoever says thank you to the member of the family who finally can't take it anymore? Who decides that another Christmas is not going to be ruined? Uh, Who stands up to the bully in the family and and says, next year we are going to do things differently, and, and you're welcome to join me, but I've had enough of this. Usually there's a price uh, to be paid for doing that. The last thing people uh, in an unhealthy family want to hear is someone speaking the truth. It's just too upsetting because it might mean we have to change. Uh, If you're one of those lonely people who has dared to tell the truth and has suffered the consequences for doing so, you should know that you have a friend in Jesus. When he said, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life, we don't usually stop to think how much he suffered because he was that person. So I realize that all of this may sound difficult. You might be thinking, well, when exactly is the good news going to be presented here? And for that matter, I would add, where is the good news in this story? Well, as is often the case with the good news, you don't see it right away. You think that it should be obvious, but it, it almost never is, not right away. The women and the disciples on Easter morning were feeling what? I mean, most of them were feeling afraid. It was only later, as the sun rose higher in the sky, that what happened began to seem remarkably good. At the first light of dawn, things looked sad and confusing, but later in the day, the truth became plain, and then it was indescribably good. So like it or not, that's often how truth works. 
Let me give you two ways that, that change can become good news for us, and, and these are true no matter what we're talking about, families, churches, businesses, organizations, you belong to a Farin, uh, any group at all. And here's the first one. Change will become possible. Uh, people will embrace change. People will eventually celebrate change when they are able to imagine a better future. I think the number one reason that, that people resist change is that they can't quite imagine what the future will look like. Right? And I think the number one reason that Jesus told parables about the kingdom of God was to give us a glimpse of how life would one day be. At that worship conference I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon, I met a pastor whose name is the Reverend Bonnie Orth, she was serving a, a 200-year-old Presbyterian church in, in uh, New York State, and a 200-year-old church in, in the U.S. is practically ancient. And uh, her church had been struck by lightning, and it had burned to the ground. Uh, Bonnie is a remarkably gifted person, faithful servant of God, and, and she saw in that situation what no one else could see. So she saved a, a charred beam from the ruins of the old church, and she commissioned a local artist to turn it into a cross. Why? Because she was already beginning to imagine the new worship space. And that cross, made out of a remnant from the old church, would be a reminder that God brings us from death to resurrection, from ashes to new life. And that was her grant project. All right, that was why she applied for the grant money, and that was how I came to know her. And uh, She also saved hundreds of, uh, of pieces of glass from what had been priceless stained glass windows. And on Easter morning, everyone who came to church was given a shard of glass. I don't want to think too much about how that happened, but everyone got a, a shard of glass from what had been a stained glass window. And at some point in, in that service, everyone came forward with their piece of glass and they laid it on the communion table at the front of the church. And Bonnie said to the congregation at that first worship service in their new building, what was broken has become whole at this table, at the table of the Lord. All right, the, the same artist who, who fashioned the, the charred beam into a cross made a new tabletop uh, for their new communion table. And I must say, I saw pictures of it. It's a beautiful thing. She had given them a vision for the future. And most of them, to their credit, went for it and embraced it. On Easter morning, this happened two years ago, after two years of meeting in the Gemeinde House, the city hall, they moved into their sanctuary. And it wasn't quite as beautiful as that 200-year-old uh, building that they had known all of their lives. But the new one was beautiful in its own way, and in many ways it's a far better building for ministry in the 21st century. So what allows us to change and, and to move forward? Well, I think it's a glimpse into the future. It's the trust that God has something in mind for us. Something that will be far better than we can think or imagine right now. And here's the other way I, I believe this story is good news. People will embrace change when they know that they are loved unconditionally. In a previous church I served, I've been working with a man whose, whose life and, and family were coming apart because of his drinking, his alcoholism, and 
I was as direct with this man as I have ever been with another human being. I was a young pastor at the time, and I, I mean, I didn't know how direct I could be with people. And when his wife called, I would go and, and pick him up at the bar, and I would say, Pete, your life is a mess. You, 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 you can't keep going like this. And I never said anything like that to anyone before. And I never wanted to say anything like that, but that's not why I went into ministry, to have blunt conversations with people. Right? Those were some of the hardest words I have ever spoken to another human being. Well, one Sunday morning, I just arrived at the church. It was early, and I was still in my car, and my cell phone rang, and it was Pete, and, and Pete wanted me to know that he was one week sober, and that he had the most amazing sponsor from his Alcoholics Anonymous group. And, and Pete said, you'll never guess what my sponsor said to me. He looked me in the eye and he said, Pete, your life is a mess. You can't keep going like this. And I thought, I've been saying that uh, to you, right? But, but, but this time it was different. And why? He was in a group of people who showed him unconditional love. He could hear it from them in a way that he could not hear it from me. For the first time in his life, he could imagine this new life and, and he could imagine that change was possible. Right? And, and like many people before him, he went for it. He seized the opportunity. I don't know where you are right now or, or what's going on in, in your life. And maybe things for you couldn't be better. And if that's true, I'm so glad. But if you are not in a good place and if you are not experiencing what Jesus called in another place abundant life, then it's possible something needs to change. And I know that change is hard, trust me on this. Uh, I can be and, and usually am one of the most stubborn people God has ever placed on this planet. So take it from me that uh, you do not have to stay where you are. Right? You are worthy of so much more. God created you for so much more than you are experiencing right now. Could it be that Jesus has walked right up to you this morning and has said, what is your name? What is your identity? What should I call you? Do you want to be healed? And if you say, yes, but it's complicated, and, and you start to give the long litany about why things will never change, the moment may have passed, and Jesus will be on his way. So I'm thinking it's time to say, yes, here I am. I'm ready for what you have in mind for me. The future, which I know you can't see right now, the future which God has in mind for you will be good. It will be indescribably good. In fact, it will be better than you can possibly imagine, uh, mainly because you will be free of whatever it is that is weighing you down. That choice is yours. Will you pray with me? Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word to us in Scripture, even when that word is very, very difficult to hear. You know, hearing that there are places in our lives that need to be changed is uh, something that's nearly impossible for us to hear. 
And yet you approach us as you approach the man in our story, as you approach so many people along the way, and you say to us, do you want to be healed? And our prayer this morning is that we will have the courage and the conviction and the faith to say, yes, please. And then to accept what you have in mind for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.